Thanks a lot, everyone. Please come and sit down because there's these empty chairs. It makes me super nervous. Um, so there's that. Thanks a lot for um, for coming. Please, I really appreciate it. I know that there's a pandemic on. I know that we were in a car today where the driver told us that COVID isn't real. Although I seem to have got it, so not now, but earlier. So uh, that was, you know, interesting. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks a lot to Surplus Books, Surplus Family Books. Uh, it's great to be in a bookshop named after the core concept of Marxism. So that's great. Uh, thanks a lot for wasting your time with me today. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about why I wrote this book and, and why I wrote this book in this way, if that's okay. Um, in 2019, I got a phone call from uh, a few friends. I actually got a couple of calls that morning from a few friends in Bolivia. Uh, this was in October, and they said, you know, there's going to be a coup here. Um, the, uh, the police have gone on, on strike. And it's an interesting thing when the police goes on strike because there's nothing progressive about their strike. They were striking ostensibly because um, Evo Morales' government had taken away from the police the right to um, give licensing, which was an enormous source of crime. And so the police had been disgruntled. Other forces in the country were disgruntled. Now you've got to remember, Evo led the government for 14 years, won three elections with immense majorities, was the first indigenous leader in a country which is superbly racist. I mean, this is an incredibly racist country, South Africa. Bolivia is an incredibly racist country. The white population of Bolivia are fascists, you know. Not dissimilar. In fact, the in an earlier era was was a Nazi, like an actual Nazi. He fled from Europe, came to Bolivia and became the head of intelligence. of work were trying to coup a um, an indigenous president who had advanced for the first time in centuries social development for the indigenous people of the country you know basic things like housing food um, you know education and so on using the wealth because Bolivia is an incredibly wealthy country using the wealth uh, the social wealth uh, for some kind of social transformation I was really upset when I got those calls. Of course, what do I do when I get a call and have to, you know, I called Noam Chomsky and I said, listen, we need to write a statement. So we wrote a statement and we published it in the Bolivian papers that day and the coup happened. Evo had, was visited by General Williams Kaliman, who was a general trained in the United States and told, get out of the country. Interestingly, liberals around the world didn't contest that, even though Evo's mandate should have ended for his previous election, which nobody contested in January of 2020. Kaliman told him to leave in October 2019. That's a coup. That's a coup by any definition. Okay, pause on that for a second. Evo goes to uh, Mexico, eventually is in Argentina. I get this news. I watch this. I watch liberals and left people. This is my greatest frustration. Something 
horrible has happened to the international left. It seems to have totally lost its mind. There are leftists today who want the United States to bomb Russia and to bomb China. I, I just can't understand what's happening to the international. Super don't understand these people. These so-called leftist intellectuals who at the time were saying Evo Morales overstayed his welcome. These are often white leftist intellectuals, okay? Angela Merkel had been Chancellor of Germany longer than Evo Morales. I never heard any of them say that she had overstayed her welcome. But this indigenous man, this Indian, was being told by white leftists in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe, he's been there too long. He's a dictator. This is exactly what they were saying about Chavez. I'd seen this movie before. I was so angry. I sat down and wrote this book in a month. I wrote this book in a month. I sent the sent the Spanish version to Evo. He read it. And then he wrote this thing that comes in the book, which really moved me. Because in it, he said, the people will prevail. And after the book was published, just a few months later, our comrade Luis Arce won the election. He won the election and the movement for socialism is back in office in Bolivia. And Evo crossed the border from Argentina, the land border, and was greeted by tens of thousands of people at a mass rally. But it's not a coup, said academics in North America and Europe and other parts of the world. It's not a coup. And I thought, oh my God, an entire generation doesn't understand about U.S. imperialism. Entire generation. The temptation always is to write like a giant book, you know. And I mean, I've met a lot of CIA agents and I have a ton of diaries and notebooks and, you know, documents and so on. I mean, my most fascinating encounter was with Chuck Kogan, who was the chief director of operations of the CIA for West Asia, for Afghanistan, Iran and so on in the 1970s and 80s. I mean, Kogan saw everything. I had been investigating the assassination of a U.S. ambassador. Adolf Dubs in Kabul in 1979. And that's when Kogan basically told me to come and see him. I flew from the Middle East to see him in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He met me in a bar wearing an overcoat, this really old, frail man. I thought he was packing a big gun, he was going to shoot me there. But he told me all these stories, including don't follow the story of Dubs assassinated. CIA guys are always sinister. You know, he says, don't follow the story of Dubs assassination. But he told me so many interesting stories. And I thought, I want to write something for, an, for a generation that has been cut off from the real history of how particularly the United States has operated in the world. So I also decided I don't want to write a book with giant chapters, you know, and with a lot of like density. Because like I know a lot of people say people don't read. I don't accept that opinion. I feel like writers are not writing a form that people can read because people are reading on like buses and, you know, students are reading, you know, on the lawn, whatever, between shifts in, you know, precarious jobs and so on. We have to find ways to get things that people can read. And also, don't you find it demoralizing when the chapter is like 50 pages long and you're like, 10 pages in and you're, when is this damn thing going to end? And you just feel like you're an idiot, you know? So I wanted to write each section just a little longer than a Facebook post to create a form that could draw in readers. That was the general idea. 
I mean, I say it took me a month. I really damaged myself. I drank a lot. I sat and I wrote this with like a fever. I mean, I, when I finished it, I really was not well. Um, I put a lot into it. Both in, and I decided early that I just can't write a book which is all ugly. Because the world isn't an ugly place. And even though the CIA is ugly, it's really ugly. I mean, I can't tell you how many terrible, ugly stories you'll read from in, in this book. There are some ugly stories, like what they did in Indonesia. There were a million people were killed in two weeks in 1965. A million people were killed in two weeks in 1965. You know, these are the same people that claim Saddam Hussein is like a genocidaire or Muammar Gaddafi is a genocidaire. What about them? You know, people now, have, they know the flag of the Ukraine. Nobody knows the flag of the Congo. The flag of Yemen, the flag of Iraq, the flag of Syria. You, nobody gives a shit about those dead. It's like an international division of humanity. You know, certain people are people and the rest, rest, they just deserve to die. The crimes of the United States are so immense. And yet, you know, we say, well, yay, Obama. You know, oh, thank God Trump is gone. Now everything will be fine. United States politics works in a funny way. There's like a Reagan and then you say, oh, thank God somebody else, Clinton has come. And then there's a Bush. And then thank God, you know, it's Obama. And then there's Trump. And then thank God it's Biden. It's an, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Because there's like a gangster politics that runs through the whole thing. And when you see how the brutalities inflicted on countries, when you see that, when you remind people of that. So I thought it's, it's too easy to just say everything is ugly. And here, the core story for me is the man of my generation, who was Thomas Sankara. I was in college when Sankara came to power in Burkina Faso in 1983. Well, actually, he came to power in Upper Volta. Most ridiculous name. Stupid colonial name. One of the first things Sankara does is he says, we're going to change the name. We're going to call ourselves Burkina Faso. Land of upright people. What a great name. You know, all around the world, we see peasants and others hunched shoulders in front of powerful people, right? You know, people, domestic servants, probably even still in Cape Town, don't want to make eye contact with the, you know, with the boss. The eyes are averted. And what does Sankara say? Land of upright people. You know, we are distinguished, dignified people. I'm not going to bend my eyes before you. I don't give a shit about you. That's a power. Sankara. We listen to him speak at the UN. Sankara you know, comes to the UN and says, damn the IMF, we don't want your money. We want to build self-sufficiency. We're going to grow our own food, Sankara. You know, that was Sankara. Sankara saying, one day in the week, women must not do reproductive labor. Just for one day in the week, men must enter the kitchen. Men must wash clothes. Men must go and pick their children from school. That was Sankara. He was an enormous hero for our generation. You know, an enormous hero. What did they do? They killed him in 1987. Just like they killed Hani. I came to South Africa this time to deliver the Chris Hani lecture in Johannesburg. The stories one hears and how the killing happens at the moment of transition. The killing of Chokri Belair, trade union hero in Tunisia in 2011. Just when they're coming in, Chokri Belair leading mass rallies. In 2013, they shoot him and he's dead. And the left loses amazing, amazing leader. Look, I believe in popular movements. I believe in the power of mass movements, but our leaders make a difference. They are the encapsulation of our hope. 
when a leader is killed, our confidence is muted. It goes down. We feel scared. So these assassinations play a role. It's not nothing. You know, when Sankara was killed, it was it puts Burkina Faso back decades, if not a century back. Look at it now. Look at Mali now. I interviewed Alpha Omar Konare in 2009. Konare said, if only we can get debt relief, if only the IMF would back off and we could solve the problem of the Tuareg, we could deal with the Fulani Dogon problems. But no, they said you have to pay. That's why in the book I quote Yanis Varoufakis saying, in this time, coups take place with banks, not with tanks. The banks come in and say, there were 20 some low income countries that paid more to wealthy bondholders during the pandemic than they paid for the health care. That's a coup. That's a coup. I have structural adjustment policies. That's a coup against the sovereignty of people. You're not allowed your sovereignty. So, okay, it's all ugly, but I didn't want to write an ugly book. <laughs> That's the point, right? Because why would you read a book and not feel confident? See, we need to write books that give people the confidence to act. Many years ago, the German Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch wrote a book called Principles of Hope, where Bloch said that the idea of hope has to be from the very beginning of the analysis. It can't come in the last line, you know, where you say everything is shit, 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 but we will rise. You know, that's how a lot of academics books are written. Bad, 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 critic, 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 but there's suddenly last paragraph. But, you know, in some road somewhere, shack dwellers march. You haven't integrated that into your analysis. Not in the analysis and not even in the form of the argument. So, of course, I did what I always do. I filled the book with poetry. So from the beginning to the end, there are, every time I felt bad when I was writing, I put a poem in. Because poets have a way of dialectically looking at ugliness and finding a gem of a nugget of hope. So the book is filled with poems from all over the place. I'm going to end in a minute, but I, I, I super really enjoyed writing this book, uh, even though it really took a lot out of me. Um, it really took a lot out of me. I enjoyed writing this book because I really felt when I was writing it, I really felt that this is like a message in a bottle. You know, I, I'm not, I'm 54 years old. I'm in the middle, bizarre generation of people. When I was in, in you know, political age, the Soviet Union collapsed. All our countries were going through debt crises and everything was just horrible. You know, like, we have a cursed generation. I mean, I joined the Communist Party in 1991. Imagine the curse of it all. Like the Soviet Union has just collapsed and you're joining this movement. And, you know, there's something ugly about our generation. And Andre knows what I'm talking about because he's exactly the same age as me. He's disappeared from here or what? Huh? Yeah, he's exactly the same age as me. He was born in, he was born in May 67. I was born in August 67. It's a difficult generation because <laughs> we've seen everything fall as we were coming of age. You know, neoliberalism was like the big thing. Just when we were coming of age, people were saying privatize everything. What we should have done is gone into private business. <laughs> like if I was smart, I would have gone into private business. I'd be like the head of a bank by now, you know. Uh, but of course, we went into revolutionary movements at the time when the revolutionary wave was dying. It's a message in a bottle, right? I'm writing this from my teachers, from an earlier generation to people who are younger than me.
I want you to know this stuff because now it's so hard to know it. What do I mean by that? And that's where I was going to end is that we are facing a sustained information suffocation. Sustained information suffocation. You just don't know anymore what's real and what's not real. You just don't know. I mean, it's so bizarre that that boy from Pretoria, by which I mean Elon Musk, has bought Twitter, arrives in Brazil this week, meets Bolsonaro, who's a fascist, and says to Bolsonaro, I've come to save the Amazon. He doesn't mean the company, man. He means the biggest carbon sink on the planet. I've come to save the Amazon. I looked at that news report and I said, and you know, all news agencies just covered it like that. Bolsonaro meets Elon Musk, this kid who made all his money based on the profits of apartheid, which he inherited from his parents, which nobody talks about as well. I've come to save the Amazon. You're going to save the Amazon. SpaceX is going to provide internet and they're going to check deforestation. And I'm thinking back to my encounter with Elon Musk in 2019, just after the coup in Bolivia. When the coup in Bolivia happened, I wrote an article just hammering Elon Musk, saying that Musk had been in Brazil at that time and Musk had come to talk about building an electric battery plant in Brazil and he wanted to source the lithium from Bolivia. And I made a really hard point based on pretty good source material that Musk had a finger in that coup. And people like Musk had a finger in the coup. They wanted the lithium from Bolivia. Obviously, that wasn't the only reason. But provocatively, I said it's a lithium coup. Provocative. Musk lost his nut. He came on Twitter and he wrote a tweet, which I hope you'll go back and read. Musk responded by saying, we'll, we'll coup whoever we want. We'll coup whoever we want. That's the old apartheid in him. We'll coup whoever we want. I don't care about your sovereignty. I am more sovereign than you. I am the sovereign. I am going to save the Amazon, which means I am going to mine it. I need the nickel. I need the magnesium. I need the gold. I need the lithium. I'll coup anybody I want. That's the world we live in. But it's so bizarre with the information suffocation that you think he's the savior. That's the world we live in. Super bizarre. Okay. <laughs> Over to you. <laughs> So building from that very powerful point about information suffocation, I think um, before we even uh, came into this process, um, some were highlighting how there's been, um, and in the book he talks about it, the idea that there is a way in which a condition of amnesia is produced. People literally forget their own immediate histories. So uh, a more recent example of this uh, is in the Philippines, where you have the return of a, the son of a, di a dictator who basically uh, was uh, responsible for, um, apart from uh, stealing about $10 billion from the Philippines uh, peoples, also a family that was, uh, or a regime that was responsible for a lot of killings of activists and especially communists. And yet they were able to win a landslide election after so much struggle. And what some are saying is that, look, we should be very careful 
because just like we saw the rise of right-wing regimes before, this is also an example of something that can happen to us. We can literally forget our immediate past histories. So, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the right can return on a popular uh, uh, way. And what can that look like in South Africa? That's a terrifying idea, but it's a possibility uh, that, 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 or a condition that, that, that can arise. Now, immediate comments on the book, like what Vijay said, it is actually readable. Um, and I just had a few days to go through it. And look, I struggle a lot because I, I do a bit uh, academic work and so on. So you deal with difficult texts, but this was not difficult at all. It was pleasant. Um, even though he deals with very difficult subject matters, but the accessibility is important. So this is something that can be used for popular education, uh, very practical ways. Uh, so I look forward to those conversations also picking up in the space because we have people in the room who do that kind of work. Um, as a, a younger activist, I think one of the key questions that I've always uh, ended up grappling with is trying to understand this very complex idea of imperialism. What is it? How does it function? Is it really like nations oppressing other nations? Is it that simple? Are there some other dynamics? And how do I make sense of the different relationships? And the Ukraine crisis just confuses a lot of people. Um, and of course, people, they also have the sections that define themselves as leftist, but they're strangely pro-imperialist as what uh, Vijay was highlighting. How do we make sense of a very complicated world? And in as much as uh, Vijay is talking about how difficult it is for the 50s generation, it's also very challenging for those of us who have no other reality than neoliberalism mm. and who have no uh, experience of the kind of organization like traditions, you know, almost it's, depending on where you are, you can sound like a crazy person if you're just trying to emphasize the importance of organizing in a, in a world where people are just used to more spontaneous kind of actions and so on, and uh, an, an assumption that you can just make things out of thin air, you know, just uh, and no real understanding of building structure and so on, the importance of structure and accountability. So um, an important reference point that Vijay has early on in the book, he talks about the turning point of the 1917 revolution represented, and in particular talking about the ways in which it gave an, a, a moment for the working class across the world, working people across the world, an example uh, of what is possible and giving encouragement. And when we think about, and particularly in the South Africa case, you can think of the Industrial Commercial Workers Union, uh, which had an, which was itself also workers were inspired and ultimately leading to uh, an instance of a massacre in which 24 workers were killed. Now, what does that mean in that moment? Vijay in the book talks about how bullets, as he's described also in his, uh, uh, in his comments, uh, in his uh, speech earlier, he spoke about how bullets are basically designed to kind of kill the confidence of people. And in many ways in the book, he also makes an important point that in as much as imperialism is so strong, it doesn't necessarily always, um, even if they have the preponderant powers, what he refers to in the book in terms of what the US represents, being able to exert very, very aggressively, but there's only so much, there's only so much coercion can do. And that the ability to lift people's confidence in itself is important. And part of this, I think what we need to remember is also about our histories. 
if we're forgetting our immediate past, we're also forgetting past achievement, past moments mm -hmm. that can also lift our confidence. Mm -hmm. So um, Africa Day is just two days away. Um, they're talking about the OAU, but the important moments that also were signifiers uh, uh, that raised the confidence of people in struggle is the Battle of Adwa in Ethiopia in 1896, where, of course, it was a cross-class uh, alliance, lords, serfs, and slaves. Uh, marching together to deal with uh, colonial uh, invaders. But in that process, the very fact that Black people could defeat a European army, it was globally significant mm -hmm. and had impact on the continent and inspired the formation of the African National Congress that we know today. The, the ways in which people realize that Black can also mean triumph instead of defeat. And after so many years, hundreds of years of slavery, of the humiliation that there could be an alternative narrative. And that is what it took for people to begin to shift the tide. So in as much as we may be weak and fragmented, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are ultimately defeated, that raising the confidence and ensuring that we're able to build independent working class organization can actually begin to shift the narrative. But that's not only understanding it in a traditional sense. We also have to think about the women's movement. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about the women's movement or the, the idea uh, or revolutionary feminism and its relevance today, we also have to understand that what Vijay is talking about in imperialism has to do with the very structure of the economy. So we, this is a buzzword, extractivism, extractivism. It sounds like all in the air. But what it's talking about is the uneven integration of the global south in relation to the global north. And he talks about how movements actually arose across the global south, organizing and uh, dealing with the issues, not only at the, 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 in terms of policy, but also thinking about armed struggle. And that was the understanding that existed in different tensions that existed, that continues today. Tension between those who want to be occupying the streets and protesting, while those there are those who want to deal with uh, uh, policy work and actually deal with uh, lobbying and so on. Now, I've walked in both spaces. And what I know for a fact is that if you're not strong in the streets, you'll be weak in the conference rooms. Mm -hmm. So the, the ability to be able to shift the tide also depends on the strength that you're able to build on the ground. Um, so we just came from, the, recently we had the alternative mining in Daba uh, here in Cape Town. And uh, it was an incredibly uh, difficult process because the alternative was hardly an alternative. It was a corporate dominated space. And it was, uh, there was a lot of feeling of defeat coming out of that space. Um, and, and that for me was more damaging for the groups that came in because the best thing we can ever do is to be organized and actually go in to contest the space to shift the narrative, to make people uncomfortable, even if we are not the organizers and convening spaces. So uh, that's my personal opinion. Anyway. So, um, and in many ways, we also have to think of the way women are subjugated under imperialism, um, and particularly black women. We have to think about the way this thing, because the, the, this whole imperialism is really thinking, and Vijay makes the point clearly, it's about land, it's about natural resources, uh, but it's also about women's labor. Labor, but women's labor also, unpaid care work, about social reproduction that women do to create the very value that gets extracted. Um, we also have to think about, uh, so in that sense, what, what it means is that we have to understand the centrality of the Black woman's body in this whole process. So the ways in which gender-based violence, um, and this is a point that uh, uh, um, uh, Bell Hooks makes about shame being an important uh, mechanism to, uh, to induce a condition of paralysis. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're not confident, paralysis seems to be like the, the, the extreme opposite of it. Uh, so in that sense, 
um, if we can think of ways, and that's what she understood imperialism to ultimately produce through rape. So what does it mean also when Pumla is telling us that dispossession is fundamental, the basis, the ultimate, the violence that lays the basis for the extreme conditions of gender-based violence that we see in this part of the world? And what are the condition of paralysis? What does it mean when you have to organize in um, communities affected by mining and there are, women are there also fighting gender-based violence, also dealing with the shame within their very movements where they're supposed to be feeling strong and confident and leading? No, quite the opposite, paralysis. I'm not saying that... The condition for everyone. Um, there, there's there's a constant struggle and the pushback. They, they, they have incredibly strong, well-grounded activists uh, in South Africa in different formations. So I just want to I don't want to project this thing of uh, victimhood. So, but the most important thing also, VJ, another important point VJ makes in the book is talking about how you know for some of us who went through the mainstream education system, we just assume that the primary contradiction. Uh, after the end of the Second World War was a tension between the USSR on one side and the US on the other side. But no, Vijay makes the point that actually it has to do with the tension between the global South and not just the, the idea of the, the, the global North, but the West. That's contradiction that exists between those two. And it's incredibly important because this is where you begin to locate an understanding about how the struggles of, for natural resources, food sovereignty, the importance of a progressive nationalism, not a narrow nationalism, but a progressive nationalism. But also it presents a problem. How do we think about uh, being able to organize an uh, independent working class like uh, organizations, but in a context where it's a much more complex picture? Are we talking about cross-class alliances to some extent? And for me, the argument I'd like to put forward is the extent to which working class, independent working class organization rooted in the women's movement, rooted in the queer movement, rooted in uh, uh, the environmental movement, is able to articulate an independent position. It's ideological, primarily. There's organizing, obviously, but primarily ideological. But to be able to assert that independence within cross-class alliances. Because I feel that the picture, the, the, the movements, the structures, the campaigns that we have to be involved in are by their nature complex. Mm -hmm. So there are different spaces and platforms that we'd have to be engaged in constantly. It's um, also a moment of crisis that we're living in, but a moment of critical convergences, convergences between the gender, the, the movements who've been organizing for gender justice, the environment and economic justice across the world. Mm -hmm. And if this is the case, then the implication is that we have to be able to, to, be able to organize in diverse ways of uh, strategies, but multiple, but also in a unified form. Um, and uh, uh, there, there are a number of things that I made notes about. And so now it's confusing me. I, I have undermined my own self in the process. But um, just no, to make amazing. the point. It's amazing. It's amazing. But to just make a point about Sankara. Very importantly, as uh, Vijay has highlighted, the, the, the Sankara has an important, he, he emphasizes a lot this thing about confidence. And in the book, it's also captured. But also, if we're thinking about the, 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 the ways in which Sankara refers to imperialism, he says it's not just coercion, but it's also about they use food. They, the, so the, the contestation about food sovereignty, but also debts and also blackmail. So the ways in which our leaders get undermined, even if they're well-intentioned. And, um, but there's also ways in which when we think about the debt crisis right now, which is one of the biggest crises that we have uh, currently, Sylvia uh, Federici refers to this as one of the most powerful form of disciplining and enslavement by mortgaging the future to instill a new type of colonialism. And that for me is also important to think about the different types of colonialism, but also the nature of the state that we have today. 
what has happened to our state? Because there's a time when they're talking about, comrades will be talking about, and I think uh, Vijay cites an example of Cuba uh, in, in 1967, where they're talking about reclaiming the state. But what's the nature of the state as we find it today? And what does that reclamation process look like for us? It can't be the same process as that, because we have a highly corrupted state that's very, um, has a, uh, has been colluding mm -hmm. in a very the, the, uh, in South Africa as an example you'd say that the, the the ways in which not even just at the national level but even at the provincial level government officials just shuffle through the corporates they they get recruited into the system so they're basically the same people that you're dealing with so how do we be able to reclaim our state what does that look like and what does that look like from the place where people are most confident uh, what are the forms of actions? And I think that uh, there, 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 there are many approaches and strategies that comrades actually are deploying on the ground to help them begin to engage with the state, to hold it accountable, to make it speak to their interests. There are movements organizing of small uh, scale uh, miners, for instance, in South Africa, of all countries, you would imagine that this wouldn't exist, but you have artisanal miners talking about their rights and new laws being introduced in response to that, and them going to hold uh, the, the state accountable. It's, it's, it's a really... There, there, there are new possibilities arising from below. But do we even have the movements uh, and organizations that actually recognize that and forge those connections? And that's a challenge. That's a strategy. There's a challenge of strategy, uh, a political problem. Um, so, uh, um, um, uh, yeah, so I think I'll, I'll just end there. Bravo. Great. Thanks. So I mean this covered such a lot in response to the question. I'm interested in this this kind of big fight. You know, I don't I don't think it's really fight for me. How they are viewed, I think governments are playing for him. I think the view is of those countries. Uh, you know, I, I, I personally like this process. We don't have any actual legislation. You know, these fascist populist groups are all about eliminating critical mass, critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? Because the, the, the trick is to eliminate um, that big sector that is capable of thinking of critical ideas of history. Any intergenerational discussion Let me tell you a story about that. <clears throat> Um, between 1976 and in 1982, my entire generation of left-wing people was wiped out in Argentina. 30,000 people were killed. They are, they are my exact contemporaries from college were absolutely removed. They were taken to a naval school. I visited it. Eduardo Galeano many years ago asked me a direct question. Have you ever been to the school? I went there, came back to him and I said, I don't know how you write your books because you write about such an ugly history. Young people taken in helicopters and thrown into the South Atlantic Ocean alive. They drown and die. 
how do you write your books? And he, he said to me that, you know, we have to, in every sentence must contain an ounce of hope. That, that's been an enduring lesson for me for years. Every sentence has to contain an ounce of hope. My entire generation was wiped out. About um, eight years ago, 10 years ago, I went to Buenos Aires. When we were setting up our institute, I went to Buenos Aires because one of the organizations we had linked to is called Patria Grande, Frente Patria Grande. And I went and I walked into the office, the meeting of the central leadership. I walked into this room and I looked around and they were all in their 30s. They were all young people. They built a mass movement, excluded workers. They emerged out of the so-called Picatero movement, you know, where they banged pots when governments fell sequentially in 2001. There were about 20 people in the room. They were all in their 30s. I, and I just looked around and I said, where are the leaders? And they said, we are the leaders. They built a movement without any connection to the past. And I remember sitting and talking to them and what are you reading? And Because I come from a movement with an unbroken history. So my older leaders taught us how to go and build a shop, union shop, or how to go and organize in the, you know, in the fields how to organize the women's movement, how to organize the student movement. We learned the skills. Make sure there are meetings, keep minutes, keep checking into your comrades, make sure everybody's feeling okay. Somebody's feeling unwell, go and see them. Build a family, build a community. To be on the left is to build a society because capitalism destroys society. I learned all those lessons in our movement, but they had to build it from scratch. And now they are party to a government which is a center-left government of Alberto Fernandez, not a great government, but still they are at that level. They built a mass movement of excluded workers, mainly Bolivian workers. They organized, you know, people who pick rag pickers on the street. These young people built a movement. It's amazing what people can do. It's really amazing. I'm looking around. There's this guy, Juan Graboy. He's one of the main leaders there. Super charismatic guy. Runs out on the street. Every time he gets a phone call, says that an African seller on the street. You know, there are lots of African migrants in Buenos Aires who sell things on the street. Combs, cell phones, you know. But they're all illegal. So they wrap the thing and they run when the cops come. Anytime one is on the street yelling at the cops, you know. The direct action. Deep feeling. You can't kill us. You just can't kill us. They killed my whole generation there. And then suddenly from the mushroom patch, the next generation of mushrooms come. You just can't get rid of us. And you know, it's funny. We don't create ourselves. The contradictions create us. We emerge out of the contradiction. That's the ingenuity of what Marx taught people like me, at least, and others maybe. That, you know, we emerge out of the contradictions of history. But our biggest task is often forgotten by people who become activists. Our job isn't to have the right ideas. Our job is to build society. You can't build a revolution unless you're building society. That's why I can't stand sectarian people. People who are always fighting with each other about some petty disagreements. I have my magazine, you have your magazine, you have your magazine. They're like characters from that Monty Python film. You know, our job is to build society. And the first circle of our society are our own comrades. I find sectarian people often don't care about each other very much. 
you know you got to keep checking in on each other how are you feeling are you okay you got something terrible happened to you did you get covid you know if we are not building society how are we going to make a revolution and i found these young people they just came from scratch you know it's in- unbelievable so yeah they did a lot of bad things to us but we're not going anywhere and i think before you ask the question i have to ask you that Unless you want to get up and speak the question here. <laughs> you want to call people? Are you want to call people? No. Calling on people. <laughs> so hi <laughs> you're making a plan <laughs> so i haven't read much of your stuff but i have read a little bit and um i really love the way you write and the things that you say and uh, i i also really appreciated your uh poetic style <laughs> Yeah, that was really pretty. <laughs> But um so when I when you were talking earlier you were suggesting that you were aiming to provide hope. And 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 when I was first reading some of your stuff I was like I don't see no hope. I was quite in despair. And one of the things one of the big things was about information because you went through a whole host I mean you go through a whole host of 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 stories about uh this one being killed or that revolution being uh, uh uh influenced or whatever by the US in particular and and it was just I'm like is this true you know i had to like accept that it's true because it was you so i just thought maybe you could you could say something about that yeah why don't we take a few questions okay yeah we can oh okay no okay so fine I'll just keep sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you for your storytelling there. And I've enjoyed it. I even read the book also. So it was quite interesting. I want to know also how do the youth mobilize and got to that hold up? Like you were saying, the mass movement. Because in south africa yes we also have youth and we've seen also it's there must be something that attracts the youth because you won't find the youth in movements and that and this it is something or they have the politics what parents or comrades are giving them then you will find them there but also i want to to know by you is um you know what in south africa we have the unions and we have movements on the ground now i this is what we experience with 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 movements and unions also we it's like we in competition also with one another there's no um 
solidarity or unity when we are fighting for one thing, because what the unions, their issues is more important than community issues. And community issues will always be a secondary to them. Now, we've, we've, what we've seen is it's, there's that collaboration with, with union communities. It's not working. And I think that's why also we are failing, because it's also about the power struggle within these organizations. And it shouldn't be like that. I don't know how you guys manage that, but, you know, that is one of the things that is not taking us in the right direction where we can say we can form this united front within South Africa to take on anything else. But that is the challenge that we are facing because we don't want, you know, you know we want to work with them, but at the end of the day, they, it's like they're also pushing us back because their things are more important than us. Because we feel like as communities, we are being used by these ones. And when things is happening, it's, Ah, you just did. So I think that is one of the things that we are really struggling with. Okay, so hi. I well firstly thanks. I I I, I will lie if I say I totally enjoyed reading it because some of it was so brutal that I had to step away and take a moment. Um, what I, what I did enjoy is that, so I am your generation and Andre's generation, since I know Andre since we were at high school. Um, and yeah, who <laughs> aged better? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I'm 50 years old and, and I'm a mother and I, when I read the the first thing for me is that I have a 23 year old son and despite being raised by a single mother and a socialist my son's hero is Elon Musk and he spends his whole weekend he is a computer scientist he's just started working a few months ago and he can't you know he says things to me you know well, I'm in the private sector. I'm like, okay, right? What the hell happened to me? I'm like, you know, there's no lights. And, you know, I'm in the private sector. And the private sector, oh, fuck it. What did I do wrong? But anyways, the thing is, when I, one of, what I appreciated when I read this is that, you know, why some will say, mom, you expect me to believe what you believe, but you never explained to me. And one of the things I appreciated was that a lot of things is tacit knowledge for me. Imperialism, that the U.S. is an imperialist, is tacit knowledge. But I don't often bother, how do I explain this to another person? So that, for me, was useful as a textbook for an old person. (laughs) That it's for young people, but here is the facts that I can engage in it. But another, a bigger question I have is really for, you know, for, for us and our generation. So my last, you know, my, my, my last position was in the World Health Organization. And I came on tired. I'm tired. I'm despondent. I'm burnt out. And I don't know anymore, you know. So what do I do? Natalie asked me, what do you do? I go swimming because I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm rebuilding and I'm doing self-care. But what is, what is our role? Because, you know, we are leaving an inheritance. I am exiting what 
yeah, how, how do we, as our generation, place ourselves in this world of the Elon Musks um, that is so easy for young people to, yeah, I mean, <laughs> our values are difficult in this world. How, yeah, where is our role? So thank you. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's someone on that side now. Uh, yeah. We just want to bring in some Thanks so much. It might mean I won't give a speech. Um, thank you so much uh, to both of you. That was really lovely. I haven't read the book, but I have heard um, you give talks on it. And I think the two things that I wanted to kind of um, as a groupie come and hear to both of you, so this is a treat, um, <laughs> is the one thing is um, the idea of sub-imperialism. So we live in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I got asked a fantastic question today. I was asked, um, you know, now that Schultz um, is coming to visit South Africa, what does this mean? You know, is, is he coming to beg? And I said, I don't understand the question. Like that makes no sense to me because we are fully integrated economically uh, financially into this kind of imperialist perspective, right? Elon Musk, they have, you know, they are having dinner. These guys are together. You'll talk about violence and memory. There's an excellent book on the poisoners, which basically links what happened in Argentina to what was going on under apartheid, what they were testing, which led to the genocide that took out a generation in Zimbabwe. Um, so, you know, these connections are, are quite tight. And then we, there's some uh, great work being done about um, the selling of arms. And so South Africa is fully integrated. But how do we make sense of South Africa's role on the continent? And I'd be curious to, you know, if we are wanting to really look at ourselves um, and see how, how we talk about imperialism, but we need to also discuss it within the context of the continent. Um, so that was the one question. And then the second um, question um, I had was around, <laughs> I, I'm curious to hear both of, both of you in terms of that, um, I think you touched on it, it was around uh, building a progressive nationalism. So how, how can we begin, because for me that's quite a, like it's, it's that contradiction. We want to have a good sense of being South African and like the modern monetary theorists coming out hard, fast, you know, we need food sovereignty, we need um, so, uh, fiat currencies, we need, you know, these four or five things. And then we can start talking about integration and globalization and whatever. But if a country doesn't have that, then we're at the whims of debt, um, control of food prices and so forth. Um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit about your thoughts around, um, and not necessarily having the right ideas, but how do we talk about being, you know, I work with, with groups on the ground and I want to say as a South African, but I don't want that to be interpreted as now we must remove all the foreigners, which is our genocide, I think, that is on the cusp. I mean, it's literally waiting yeah. At the gates, um, it's going to be a bloodbath if we don't do something quick and fast. People are going to die in this country. Yeah. So I think those those are the two questions. Thank you. I, I think take the three and, and, and yeah. Yeah, um, get a response. 
So uh, I'll just start with that because uh, it's like <laughs> so. Yesterday, uh, um, was it yesterday? The day before yesterday, uh, BJ also launched a book uh, on uh, Ho Chi Minh, and I haven't read the book myself, but from what he was saying and sharing, but there's an understanding that the progressive nationalism of that period, they had an internationalist or a world view. So importantly, this book, the afterword written by Richard Pithouse, talks about um, a controversial figure in Becky, trying to understand the Pan-Africanism that he is at least, one thing he's clear on is his Pan-Africanism. So the way he goes to, uh, the, to, to, to Haiti to mark the 200th anniversary of the Haitian Revolution and how he's heavily criticized in South Africa. He also actively supports the marking of the Adwa uh, battle in South Africa. But there's so little understanding, even among people who are coming from the nationalist or progressive nationalists in South Africa or the BC movement. Very few people. It's a particular generation that remembers and understands the significance. Others lost. The young ones. Like, I, don't, I can't. I struggled once. I was trying to organize a thing on the Adwa. And I did actually go out and look to people. I could find only one person, one person who was has a relationship, comradely relationship and working on a project on Adwa. So he has understanding. But so those things exist. People are trying to forge again, but it's a very difficult process because we really need to consciously uh, uh, include it in our, our, pop, our popular education work, uh, in what we write and what we share, the narratives that we write. So I'll give you the example of um, uh, Charlotte Martaita. Uh, so there was a publication uh, put in the newspapers uh, reflecting on her legacy. And a big debate bro- broke out around whether the, the ANC can claim her and all of that. But what was missing is that clearly it was written there, Ethiopianism. And no one was questioning, wait, what? What is this thing? Religion? What is the roots? Where does it come from? Her generation was inspired by the Battle of Adwa. We need to be able to reclaim these histories because it's not just yesterday, it's today, it's present. Because if, if, and there's a certain crisis unfolding in Ethiopia and it raises questions that are relevant to South Africa. Uh, so things about identity formation, ethno-nationalism, you know, because they also have very deep debates there. And the consequences of failure are also being played out in very scary ways. What does that mean? How do we make sense of the different groupings and understandings of nationalism and the ways in which also the communists have been dealt with there? Because they were also wiped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going there to organize, it's a very difficult context. Not impossible. There are contradictions still. You go to where the contradictions are and from there you organize. And you, Marxism as an instrument or as a tool, as an ideology, as a perspective rooted in the things that are actually happening every day and beginning to make sense of it. And that's the way it should play itself out. And particularly the ways in which women are being integrated in their industrial parks and so on. Important contradictions there to examine and figure out and see what the organizing can look like today. Very hostile environment, but not impossible. So the seeds are always there. And you need people who are ready to like nurture them and give them some coherence. That's usually what workers actually are looking for. Uh, the, 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 if you will, the, 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 the role that we can play. Um, so in that sense, and the question also about the sub-imperialism, for me, 
it's it, look it's something i also grapple with but i'm very suspicious of the theory mainly because if we're looking at south africa it's not as if and maybe that's where it's a sub but still it doesn't really help us understand how south africa mm. is positioned because there's certain things you can't do you can relate with the continent in an extractivist way but that relationship is uh, embedded within a white supremacist kind of a framework and agenda and a corporate uh backed process and all of that but there are certain things that the national bourgeoisie that's trying to come up in south africa and assert itself and for its own on its own terms they're not able to even achieve the transformation that they they can't even their be is like a bankrupt kind of initiative and process uh so uh, the the ability to actually bring the transformation and deliver on the the freedom charter and all of that they can't even begin to, to 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 make any headway so how much of an imperial in terms of their own their imperialist ambitions to what extent have they been able to even build and form a class like a an elite that's able to like now act in a way with its own agency and autonomy and whatever have they fully formed in that sense i'm not sure the nature of it seems quite it's so complicated because there's so many layers to it and the 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 the, the uh, i feel that um there are questions i'm not saying dismiss the theory it will have uses definitely but i think we need to engage it robustly um and i don't think it's enough when um there 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 are certain elements of supremacy and uh, proximity to whiteness that creates a certain differentiation you can even see it uh within the country let you don't have to go across the border just look at the class relationships between those who have proximity to whiteness and those who are distanced from it there are differences already there it just amplifies it when you are coming from across the border now they consider you as completely backward because you are coming from this other universe and for us it's also because of the extent to which a progressive pan africanism has also uh, lost its groundings in south africa which is strange because you have like organizations present that exist and uh, but they also have their own internal political problems but at the same time their understanding is still very limited so this idea of uh, amnesia and how it's produced it's something that we also have to think critically about how to overcome it through, politically and what that looks like about shifting the narrative thank you No, that's super interesting, and and I just want to go across the South Atlantic to South America for both. I actually want to return to both these questions and then come to you. Um, you know, the idea of sub-imperialism comes from Brazil. It's a concept developed by Ray Maurini, whose centenary is this year. One of the great Brazilian Marxists, but Maurini was writing in a completely different context when international capital needed a launch pad. Uh, for its tentacles to develop in south america so after the coup of 1964 in brazil that coup lasted 21 years um you know american banks and so on used san paulo as a way to um you know have tentacles into argentina and so on but the theory is now superseded because now the banks in new york can be directly linked to buenos aires you don't have to go through a sub imperial country so i find it curious that this concept is being used and it was first brought back to attack the brics which i think is interesting it tells you something about the way a certain kind of left was uncomfortable with the brics project 
Um, I wrote a book called The Poorer Nations, just when the BRICS started, where I made the argument that the BRICS is merely an internal battle amongst countries that were emerging out of, you know, a sense of subordination. So all these countries were fighting with the West, particularly India, Brazil, and South Africa, on intellectual property rights, on getting AIDS drugs, for instance. That was a core issue. Um, or on in agricultural subsidies. That's what brought IPSA together, India, Brazil, South Africa. When China and Russia joined in 2009, it was in, in reaction to the Great Depression, the collapse of the North Atlantic economies in 2007-8. Very quickly, people started to criticize the BRICS even before it got going, saying, oh, these are sub-imperial formations. And I was very suspicious of that. You took an anachronistic concept brought it into this period without showing me how it belongs. In fact, the Indian bourgeoisie is not sub-imperialist, it's subordinate. It's subordinate to the West. I would say that a large section of the bourgeoisie in South Africa is also subordinate to European and US capital. They're dependent and subordinate to it. Their range of operations is narrow. French banks and Swiss banks and Swiss mining companies don't need South Africa. Glencore doesn't need an office in Cape Town to be out there suctioning out the value from the DRC. You know, Glencore directly goes into the DRC. They go from Switzerland to the DRC. They don't have to go through South Africa. So I, I found that theory to be really limited. And it didn't understand the tentacles of capital as it comes into this continent, you know. I mean, you could make an argument for Rwanda, interestingly. Why did the Rwandan military enter Cabo Delgado in Mozambique a few months ago. On whose behalf? It was on behalf of the French government to defend French Total's investment off the coast of Cabo Delgado. That's an interesting story. Tell me, there's no sub-imperialism operating there. It's a subordination of Maputo to international capital. They're completely disarmed. They allowed a foreign military to enter their own territory and they had to then congratulate them. It's such a bizarre scenario. Now, in terms of this idea of progressive nationalism, one of the great things that Hugo Chavez put on the table is that we have entered a period of regionalism, progressive regionalism, not progressive nationalism. You know, the Bolivarian movement was not about Venezuela. It was about the whole region. And so they were talking about the, you know, ALBA, the Bolivarian area of the Americas. It's a regional concept. So when you're talking about Pan-Africanism, is there any valence for that? Is there a charge? Is there an ability to revive that discussion? About a month ago, I wrote a piece that was published in India called Is Asia Possible? Is a Pan-Asianism possible? Or did the Japanese destroy that in World War II? You know, is it possible for China and India to somehow bury the hatchet of a border war in 1962? Is a pan Because in Latin America, this is an idea that has gripped people's imagination. This Bolivarianism. Patria Grande. Patria Grande is the name of the party that I work with in Argentina. That means our homeland, Nuestra America, our America. I mean, these are powerful, popular ideas. They don't exist here. Pan-Africanism is a niche idea. You know, can it be revived? Because that's actually, that's what is going to save countries against xenophobia. When migrants enter, I mean, I go to Yeovil, Yeovil is a Pan-African scene in Johannesburg. You know, I play dice on the street with these Congolese fellows. Some guy from Zimbabwe comes in. It's a total Pan-African scene. That's the future of your continent. 
it's not some segregated idea of you know we are from this neighborhood and we are south african what the hell is south african it's a weird name for a country okay it's the only country in the whole world that's named as part of a continent there's no like north africa east south america there's no country like this only south africa is named as a fragment of a continent there's north and south korea but there's no south asia as a country it's very weird what, what is the cultural density of south africa apartheid it's racism or whatever so relax guys if somebody comes from zimbabwe relax welcome them they often more interesting than you <laughs> take them in take them in you know this idea about um about unions and communities this, this is an idea also about organizations and those who don't belong to them i mean this has been a long drama in our movements how do our organized movements deal with people who are not in the movement uh, that's one issue i'll just give you a positive example from india in india 95% of the workers are outside unions they are in the informal sector 95% that's basically everybody that means only 5% are in the formal sector about 3 decades ago the organized trade union movement began to recognize if we only fight to organize 5% we are going to be wiped out so 30 years ago the organized trade union movement started to take up the issues of informal workers particularly women workers for for instance women workers in nursing care industries of various kind daycare centers things like that they took up those issues in the last few years there have been strikes of 300 million workers general strikes now that when you go on the street and see the general strike there are mainly women workers from these marginal jobs often you know there are jobs in india like public health workers they are treated as not workers but volunteers they are paid a stipend not a wage i mean it's just ruthless exploitation during the pandemic these women were going door to door wearing plastic bags on their faces and things like that getting a stipend it's ridiculous so but the trade union movement decided we had to just we can't be syndicalist we can't be stuck in our shop we have to take up the issues of the whole class that means that unions have to fight for water rights housing rights i mean this farmer strike that you may have followed in india for one year 100 million farmers were on strike garrisoned the city of delhi i mean it's amazing entire communities mobilized it's a huge radicalizing force here's the most frustrating thing millions of farmers were agitated entire communities came to defend them and in those areas there was an election and the right wing won that's a separate problem we don't know how to convert our community and social power in these so called elections there's so much money there's so much media power that you know modi was defeated by the farmers but he won the election this is not a democracy that we're living in this is money power it's intimidation it's all kinds of other stuff we have to also face up to that you know but i think that unions it's a big climb for unions to learn this and i don't want to lecture anybody about what i'm just telling you explaining what happened in india 
But I also want to say that despite that, the left lost the election. Now, is that demoralizing? Not at all. It's not at all demoralizing. Because it has to clarify for us what elections are and how we need to better build power. Every defeat is a moment of clarity. Defeat should not be a time for demoralization. It should be a moment of clarity. We have to learn to be better. You know, that doesn't mean just work harder next time. But we have to be cleverer in our strategy and so on to think more about what's happening. And I think the kind of discussions taking place in the movements in India now, in the aftermath of this farmer's victory, massive victory, humiliation for the government, and then the election defeat, these two things are both true. So now let's construct an understanding of how can these two things be true. I remember in 1996, I was campaigning for one of our comrades, Subhashini Ali. She was a fantastic candidate running for parliament in the town of Kanpur, working class town. I was going into these areas where there were red flags all over the place, go door to door, saying vote for our comrade Subhashini. She ended up winning. But so many times workers would come and say, comrade, we are with you in the factory. But for elections, we have to vote for the Congress. And we'd say, why are you doing that? Because, you know, they get us water connection, light connection. They'll get a school place for my kid. There's patronage networks built, baked into democracy. And we, you know, on the left, we, we don't know how to do patronage. We are like sincere people. We solve corruption and all that. You know, and so people are like, we like you in the factory. Fight for us to get higher wages. But here, a little bit of corruption is necessary. And so sometimes our sincerity is our downfall. Like one, now I'm not saying we should be also doing patronage and so on. But it also means you should be fighting for water connection. And electricity connection and so on. These are all lessons we have to learn. See, I don't feel like the problem is a movement is like this, therefore attack it. There, there are also that attitude that we found something bad in the movement, let's attack it. I always believe every movement can learn, let's join it and do something. And if it's a disaster, still, let's try to do it. It's much better to be together than to hang separately. So, join it and see. What, what is one to say? What is one to say to your... Yours was a commentary, not a question. And when you said, our time is gone, I wanted to cry because you're only 50 years old. <laughs> you have decades to contribute. You know, your son is going through a momentary phase. Eventually, he'll discover Elon Musk is a gangster. That's okay. My daughter is a few years older than your son. She's a comedian. She's a stand-up comic, you know. God knows what these kids are going to do in the world. They are going to make a whole different kind of history. All we can do is support them. And tell them that Elon Musk is a nutcase. You are in the private sector. Go find some proper private sector. Not this guy. We have a lot to contribute, I feel. I mean, I don't know. You guys want to put us on the ice floor like Eskimo? Row out and alive? No, we are not finished. We are still here. I feel, I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe we sound anachronistic, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so um, I have a question though. Um, okay, uh, can I just point to something that they're actually 
Yes, but there's also a logistics issue. Um, does anybody, um, will anybody be able to offer transport to Gugletu? I just want to offer for a comrade to Gugletu. Um, otherwise, uh, uh, please let me know if you can. Yeah, okay, sorted. Okay, I'm not sure if, if in case you mentioned the name, we're going out to know what Esther Ramani has had a Yeah. Esther Ramani, please, uh, can you um, speak, please? The floor thank is yours. Yeah, thank you. I had my hand up and oh, then. I saw most of the questions were from the room, so I lowered my hand. Thank you for noticing it. I, I'm just, um, I, I'm just very curious. I mean, I really found the discussion. I can't hear you. I found the discussion very. Is stimulating. she unmuted? Is she speaking? She's speaking and she's unmuted. Okay. Maybe she can type a question. Because yeah. I can't. Can you guys hear? No. Sometimes that happens also. Radio silence on this side, but you are hearing. Okay, I've unmuted myself. Can you hear me? No. Yeah, no, I've seen comments. Sorry. Anyway, okay. meanwhile, you can Jason, take the Jason, take it on. to the gentleman with the cap. Okay, I, I, I do have a few comments and, and, and a question. Uh, first, I want to say, you know, when I when I came here, you know, I thought I really wanted, I want to read a good book. But now, after, you know, your small input, now I really want to to read it. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's number one. Number two, I think also talking now to a South African context, I think we, and I like that that uh, Hibis mentions that you know our generation we come you know into a situation where neoliberalism is all we know and then you know not nothing of prior uh, societies and so on uh, but i want to add also onto that that you know we also come our generation we come into a time whereby you know the the two stage revolution system is already in play you know like politic the political revolution first and then the economy after so it's already in play and now we are building movements in that situation. So now also our movements tend to fight political struggles, but excluding the banks, right? We fight political struggles, we exclude the media. Uh, uh, and to a point, even critical the uh, theories like Marxism and communism, right now comrades will tell you that, no, please, we don't want to hear about Marx, we want practical things, you know? Uh, and yet capitalism itself, it's a, you know, it's a theoretical concept, but we are not fighting it uh, uh, theoretically. Uh, and of course, it you know, leads into this thing of, you know, we don't really understand the cause and effect of, of some of our struggles and, and, and issues and so on. Uh, uh, but what, what, was, what does your book say? Because well, first, I thought when the, 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 the thing was, I thought the title was metaphoric, you know, Washington Bullets. But now I, I realize that it's actually, you know, yeah, yeah. Real bullets, <laughs> Real bullets you know. Uh, but but, but, but what, what do you say about 
the very same bullets that the oppressed can use in their favor. You know, Fanon also talks of violence being able to transform the oppressed uh, uh, to see or to become more revolutionary, you know. So that that similar, you know, bullets, violence, how the CIA use it, how can the oppressed also use it, you know, in 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 our favor. And and just last thing, last thing, very short. Uh, leftist and labor parties. You know, I know China, I stand to be corrected. No, India, I, I stand to be corrected. Almost has like a hundred communist leftist parties, right? And right now, South Africa, we are almost, we are, we, we are getting there, you know, <laughs> where we are getting more SACPs, you know, popping out from the corners and so on. Uh, what would be your, you know, comment on, you know, how we can avert us also reaching a point where South Africa end up with, you know, a hundred leftist parties and with no leftists. <laughs> okay, I can just add uh, Isra Ramani's solution, which you just put in, in the chat because there are commonalities. So may I do that? Yeah. Uh, just to add. So yes, Isra Ramani, um, uh, first of all, congratulates the whole discussion and finds it really stimulating and inspiring. <laughs> Sorry, a question is about the fragmentation of the left in South Africa and in other parts of the world. How can one address the sectarianism? That is preventing us from working together. And what is the state of the left in India? What is the state of the left in India? So that's, that's Esther's question. Thank you, Esther. One more back there and then we can... I don't know the why we reach uh, hi, uh, first I just want to say it's been very refreshing to listen to you both, especially because I think it's very skewed towards a more positive perspective and, you know, as we heard, it's very easy to kind of fall into despair. Uh, with what's happening in the world. And I guess my comments also ties into some of the previous questions. Um, I was involved in Freeze Must Fall. Um, I was at UCT. And, and so it really struck me when you spoke about movements without a link to history, right? But then also building on movements without a link to previous generations, you know? And so for a lot of us in Freeze Must Fall, I think we could feel that, especially because the movement was very centered around tertiary institutions. There wasn't um, any real links to working class struggles. and But we also really struggled to build that. And we, I think we also didn't know how, right? And so we also, well, personally, I also felt a bit let down by previous leftist generations, you know, because they kind of like popped in and they said, hey, and if, because we didn't listen uh, immediately, they kind of just said, okay, bye, uh, you guys are a hopeless generation, sort it out by yourselves, and we obviously didn't sort it out by ourselves, and the movement fell apart, right, very quickly in 2018, there was no more fees must fall, and fees has not fallen, and so the same struggle just kind of continues, but then I guess that also kind of brings me to my second point about internationalism, you know, and how, you know, this current moment feels like there's a change, especially with what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine. It feels like, you know, maybe there's a shift in kind of global powers. Maybe now is the moment um, that we haven't had in a long time. But honestly, it's very hard to even build solidarity in Cape Town amongst different organizations and different issues you know you have housing organizations you have 
education focused organizations and it's even hard in our, in our city to build these um, links of solidarity so how do we even get to this internationalism and this kind of global you know shifting where we say okay we don't want to live in this world anymore or this world that is like this how do we even start when we can't even build these links between our generations in our cities but also organizations and movements in our cities yeah <laughs> can I just can I just add a last question, Vijay? Um, short one. So just about youth and youth participation. I feel like many of the youth are, you know, disconnected from socio-historical context or history. Um, and so how do we? And also, you know, in the age of technology, it's so easy to be distracted by social media and all these algorithms trying to grab our attention. Um, so that we don't, you know, have the time to sit with books like yours, even with it being only 100 pages. Um, so how do we, how do we address that issue, you know, with, uh, shortening attention span and all these other factors that distract youth from political issues? Um, and yeah, what, what could you say? How could we inspire, you know, younger people in this age to act and to take an interest in history and sociology and to participate in, you know, changing or adding positively to society? Um, These are really amazing questions. Um, I want to start with the question of the fragmentation of the left. I think what happens is that if you look at the history of the left in any country, it goes through phases. And there are moments of great unity, and then there are moments of great fragmentation. And none of these are permanent. So, as I said, I came initially to South Africa to deliver the Chris Hani lecture in Johannesburg. Um, after I finished the lecture, uh, Comrade Solly from the SACP responded to my lecture and he said some interesting things. One of the things that I found very interesting was he said that, um, in a sense, I had ended my lecture saying this is the time of the United Front, that there's a need now because of these escalating crises, there's a need for seeking unity around common agreed upon issues to build mass campaigns and he hardened and came back and said it's exactly the project now that the left needs to build a united front a united left front on issues like food and fuel price inflation mass campaign against unemployment all left forces join numsa abaklali sacp all of them in fact at that event George from Abaklali had come and Soli pointed it out. Abaklali has faced a series of brutal executions of their leaders. Talk about, I, I was in Durban the other day at a meeting and you know, at the end of the meeting, they wrote something on Facebook. Raj Patel and I had visited and we gave, spent the day doing a school at the France Fanon school. And they wrote on Facebook, today is the day we didn't cry. Because all their previous meetings had been funerals and so on. I just thought that was so powerful. Today is a day. But George came for that meeting and, you know, 
And Solly said, and look at what they are facing. Now imagine in the period ahead, if there is a united left front on issues like unemployment or food and fuel price inflation, these could be quite powerful instruments in a country like South Africa if they don't get scuttled again by the dialectic between unity and, and sectarianism. If sectarianism doesn't prematurely return. Or somebody says, we don't trust this party, we don't trust that party. That's the worst attitude. When the opportunity for unity presents itself, everybody should go there. Let the cycle of unity disperse into fragmentation. Don't force the fragmentation. So that is a very interesting opening. I I feel that you are going to experience that now in your country. If a major left force is saying, we accept that this is the time of a united front, I think all people should join and get involved, one way or the other. And then see how the cycle of unity goes. Because that's part of politics. You know, it's not always about being individually correct. It's about testing the moment. You know, and Lenin was a genius at that. He always tested the moment. When you read his writings, he tested the moment. They tested the viability of the bourgeois revolution of February 1917. By April, it was clear that that revolution was falling apart. They continued to test it till September. And then they went for the second revolution. But they continued to test the viability. They were not sectarian. They didn't make the second revolution in February. They could have. They were very powerful in February. They waited till September, October. They tested the viability of unity. Could we unify with the cadets and with you know, the bourgeois parties and other forces? But Kerensky was wanting to take Russia deeper into the war. First World, the Great War. The Bolsheviks knew you had to pull out of the war. You test the viability of the moment. You go as far as you can go. Don't prematurely try to scuttle something. That's sectarianism. That's the worst attitude in the left. When people are unwilling to test what's possible. You know, because they have a prehistory. They say, no, no, let's go back. It failed then. Therefore, it will fail again. Then you'll do nothing. You know, I'm going to quote Lenin again. Lenin said, politics is about taking risks and allowing yourself to fail. If you don't allow yourself to fail, you never do anything. So that's what, that's the moment in a way I would say. The second one that's important, I think, is the question of internationalism again, you know, which keeps coming up and and so on. And, you know, this is a very complicated time because, my God, look at the left. I mean, there's no unanimity of opinion in what's happening in Ukraine. You know, there's no unanimity. People have all kinds of ideas. You know, that other left which had called for the U.S. to go and attack Syria in 2012 is back now. The U.S. should attack Russia. You know, th- there is a strand in the left like that. They backed the NATO war in Libya also. Those same people. Same people. I don't want to name names. But I know who they are. They destroyed Libya. They didn't care. Okay, that meant destroying the Sahel, frankly. You know, because the repercussions, these people don't know that part of the world. The repercussions of that war is gone all the way down to Niger. Agadez is now the world's largest drone base that the US has. You know, very unknown that they have a massive drone base. The French have garrisoned the town of Arlit. 
you know this is the consequences of that imagine if i mean it's really interesting that at the time when people should be calling for negotiations and so on people want the west wants to arm ukraine they are willing to let the ukrainians die for a objective that's greater than ukraine you know why aren't they calling for peace immediately that's what should anyway i don't want to get into that i'm just telling you that the divisions are so stark and the bewilderment is so great it's really demoralizing for people the attacks facebook is the worst place to discuss any politics and my god there are some people who are professional facebook politicians they are professionals they go from page to page attacking people they don't do anything they sit in their house in their underwear attacking you on facebook all day long go and build something man i want to see you test your ideas in the world go out and build something go tell people in 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 you know in durban that you want to support the western bombers as they go and bomb russia see how that will feel i'll be interested to see how many people will come behind your signs and so on test your ideas in the world don't just yell about them but we have to have a commitment to internationalism you know we are committed to ending warfare look i would like the united states to come back to the arms control regime the us left the anti ballistic missile in 2002 the us left the intermediate nuclear forces treaty in 2019 come back to these treaties you can't say other people are starting wars and then you are leaving these treaties with immense lethal arsenal that you want to deploy in finland and in taiwan you are the ones saying we want to weaken russia russia is a major nuclear power calm down guys that was lloyd austin calm down you know we need to be also clear what's going on so our internationalism is partly what you just said which i i think is correct that actually sorry fellas in washington things are happening in eurasia that you can't control eurasian integration is inevitable the germans german chancellor schulz is coming here 30 some percent of their energy comes from russia only 6% of india's oil comes from russia yet when jay shankar the indian foreign minister external affairs was in washington standing next to blinken the reporters you know they talked like this washington post when is india going to stop supporting russia jay he was super calm and then he said something which is amazing he said i have studied this he said the oil that india buys in a month europe buys in an afternoon think about it and that was the end of his answer blinken was there lloyd austin was there because even the right wing indian government knows eurasian integration is inevitable the americans are trying to stop it by force because their hegemony is threatened by this so we have to understand the world is changing that's why cyril ramaphosa whatever you think about his politics on this issue is got to he is being driven by the realities of the world people say why is in south africa supporting the us position because they understand the realities of the world this is an insane country why isn't there a train why did you know fmi and i have to fly from johannesburg to cape town there should be a high speed train we should come here in a matter of some hours who's going to build the train for you definitely not the yanks the yanks don't know how to build high speed trains they can't build infrastructure in their country 
that you're going to have to cut a deal with the Chinese. Sorry, it's a reality. Everybody knows that. You may not like to admit it. We know the world is changing. And people like Ramaphosa and all, they may not agree with them, but they're not unintelligent people. They know what's up, right? So I would, and then quickly, I'll just do the other two. I mean, your question, both of them are about Fanon. The youth question and the question of violence. I'm really glad Inkani is bringing out the Zulu translation of Wretched of the Earth. And I hope, firstly, I hope you buy a lot of Inkani books as they keep coming and support Inkani books, an amazing publication of history ahead of it, because Inkani is going to publish all the Nkrumah books, collection of Amilka Cabral, collection of Ruth First, and we are going to work with the Chris Hani Institute to do collections of Hani and so on. It's going to be a really important publication um, agenda that I hope will be fully laid out. In Wretched of the Earth, Fanon says two things that are super important. Firstly, he doesn't say violence makes you dignified. What Fanon says there is that violence of the people in a violent structure is inevitable. If you dehumanize people, if you treat people like animals, then they are going to riot, they're going to burn, they're going to steal. The violence of the oppressed is not authored by the oppressed. The violence of the oppressed is a mirror of the structure of society. And then he argues, because he is super influenced by Marxism, he, he says in, in Wretched of the Earth that I am going to slightly stretch Marxism. He argues there that's the normal thing. You don't need to have a political movement that says go and be violent. People are going to be violent. That's what they know. Says so-called lumpen proletariat, you know, they're going to be violent. That's what they know. But then he says, but we have to organize and channel people's energy. We have to channel people's energy. We have to channel people's energy around the obstinate facts. He uses the word obstinate. There are some obstinate facts like hunger. Hunger is not going anywhere. Hungry people don't say, I surrender. I'm going to now starve to death. Bye. Hungry people constantly want to transcend hunger. They either hustle on the street, they grab your cell phone, they ask you for a little money, they scrounge in a garbage bin, they go and take some garbage job so they can earn a little bit to get a little bit of bread to feed their family. Hunger is obstinate. Organizing around hunger is a very powerful weapon for humanity, to build humanity. So when one says, you know, the youth are not going to get involved, what youth are we talking about? If we're talking about working class dispossessed youth, they are living amongst obstinate facts. In, in Algeria and Tunisia, there's a term for the unemployed. It's called people who lean against the wall. Because they got none, you know, you're just leaning against the wall. It's a very evocative phrase. Organizing the unemployed as a, as a political gesture is a very powerful thing because people who are unemployed understand that the lack of work is also crumbles their dignity. You can't live. So these obstinate facts have to be the core of politics, which is why just to return to the theme of, of you know, the United Front, if a United Front is organized around obstinate facts, you can build mass movements. Millions of people can get organized. Millions of people. Why should people, we were driving into town, there's that slavery fort or whatever it's called. 
Castle. Right at the lip of it is a homeless encampment. That's an obstinate fact. People who don't have homes, they build their homes. They build it somewhere or the other. They use whatever materials, corrugated iron, plastic sheets. They build a home. Sometimes they'll get some electricity connection. They'll get a satellite dish. They'll watch TV. You know how the bourgeoisie are. They'll say, look at the poor. They have cell phones. What do you expect people to do? Why shouldn't they watch TV? Why shouldn't they have cell phones? Why shouldn't they have pleasure and joy in their lives? What's wrong with you? You're an animal for behaving like that, saying, why do they have cell phones? Why do you have six houses? You know, in the Ho Chi Minh Day, I mentioned that 22 billionaires, including Elon Musk, have more wealth than all the women in Africa. That's 325 million women have less wealth than 22 individuals, one of whom is Elon Musk. Please tell your son that. How great is that fact? You know, what kind of people are these? I have absolutely no respect for these people. How do they live like that? It's grotesque. But we can't organize by shaming them. They don't care. They are building planets for themselves. But we can organize the people around the obstinate facts. And you can't say, okay, let's take up the gun. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. We'll get obliterated. This is a highly sophisticated society with a state that is so powerful. With a security force that is not only government security, but private. Everywhere you turn, there's some buzzing bees security or lamppost security or what all bloody creative names they have. Everywhere you turn, there's jeeps driving around with armed private guards. We can't do that. That's in the past. I learned that from Chavez. Chavez used to always say, we've got to build the confidence of the people. You march with the people. Don't go to the forest with your guns and say, we are going to bring the revolution from there. That was Cuba, 1953, 54, 55, up to 59. That's a long time ago. You can't go to the table mountain and sit there and say, we are a foco. We are going to build a revolution. They'll obliterate you in five minutes. They'll send armed drones to obliterate you. You know, you can't fight the state. You have to fight the state with people. I'm not just saying that for the security services that are listening, okay? <laughs> I actually believe that. So, just to be clear, okay? there's no secret meeting after this, okay? Wow, man, that was a really quick bunch of hours, man. Wow. That's a fast bunch of hours. But you have to, uh, you have to take the... A few more questions. A few more questions. So, no, I just wanted to share that um, something that um, has been really, and it was to the point that you raised about how do we get young people, and you're saying which young people. And um, it's just to reiterate the point you said about poetry. So we've been doing some very interesting work around, like, futures thinking. So thinking about 
and and you can always access people in their imaginations in through play through but also then linking it to practical conversations so you can say how do you what can you imagine cape town looking like how would if the people living by the castle what would what would their lives be like and we've had some really good um responses and they actually had the launch here our move next so if you want to have a look at it it's our move next and that was the first of that project where we had artists and writers and activists who don't get a lot of time to be able to start thinking about um the positive the future being hopeful i mean some of it was pretty negative but <laughs> you know there is some hope in there so just as an idea you can meet people where they're at i think you said once in one yes. of your talks yeah yeah Um, I think to build, to build, uh, to just close off, uh, I'd like to also draw attention to the fact that it's good, it's important to recognize that the period of armed struggle is over, but the period of armed struggle also, and the book highlights this, it wasn't just about uh, AK-47s, there was also the ways in which teachers, doctors, and technicians also had a role to play in the struggle. And we have to start thinking about that role and that place of the people who occupy these positions in society or who are organized for them to also envision their role differently and build different relations as we're trying to build a society we want. And it doesn't have to be so big. It can be about building that at the local level. So the ways that you're thinking about artists and the way they can re, re, uh, 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 reimagine society, there's also the ways in which we can have other people also reimagining their roles and relationships around the nature of work. Because even the nature of work itself is changing. And there are ways in which we have to think about work so differently uh, in the ways that it's located, the way, the kind of work that's not valued and beginning to value that kind of work and what that looks like. You have to literally build an alternative from below in our own spaces, but the ways that that, that can then feed into the kind of pressures and demands that we make uh, to, 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 to the state ultimately. Um, but then, um, and, and, and creating that in our own spaces uh, to kind of prefigure uh, the, 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 the kind of changes that we want to see. Um, but then uh, I would also like to draw attention to the fact because the sister talked about uh, from Fees Must Fall, you talked about the kinds of challenges that the movement faced in certain periods and that intergenerational kind of conversation. And what I'd like to highlight is that, and, and Leanne Nando actually highlighted this once in a meeting in Johannesburg. She talked about how the past generation is probably also dealing with PTSD. So there are some deep innate kind of challenges and problems and issues and trauma that exists from the past experience. You know, living under apartheid, but struggling under it and losing people. People are very conscious about who they are. And we are conscious also about who we lost in our cycles of struggle and so on. And not just in the immediate protest, but just life itself, seeing the way capitalism just takes and breaks people. Um, so the people that we lose uh, through that whole process. And that's also part of the trauma of just being alive or the, the struggle to just stay alive in itself. You know, the disposable black woman, uh, how you navigate the world, knowing how disposable that you actually are and actually seeing that happen to people around you constantly. Uh, the, the, the women who keep getting missing because they are getting kidnapped and violated in different ways. What does that mean to survive in such society? So we have a lot of pain. And so I think that the ways that we're not very good with naming pain. Uh, there was a sister with the um, uh, housing assembly 
who's, uh, who have uh, activists here, but there was a sister who was with them, um, Amanda, and we experienced her as someone who knew how to speak to pain. She passed away during the COVID, uh, the high point of the COVID crisis, uh, but um, she knew how to talk about pain, own pain, speak it, even if it's difficult. Mm. Like that was something excellent for us because it, she put it out there for us to deal with. And I think that there's a praxis of care that also needs to come into spaces. So we know how to deal. And I've seen Abahlali actually do that in practice where someone who's not even part of Abahlali just says, look, uh, my, uh, my, my shack has been bent down uh, or my siblings have been evicted. And they, they just know how to respond with care and concern, you know, just to show up for people. And I think that in many ways, we just don't know how to show up for each other, as, as Dvijay was also saying so. Um, then there's the other issue of divide and rule, the imperialist tactics that were used to kind of break us. Um, and uh, the ways in which uh, the, the divisions that exist amongst us also get amplified uh, through our own actions and our own ways of thinking and our own ways of operating, um, the kind of ideological things that we internalize. And in many ways, peace must fall fragmented precisely around those questions. What do you do with the foreigner and uh, gender-based violence? How we deal with the violence against women in spaces when comrades actually violate each other, rape happens. Uh, how do we hold each other accountable? And around money, uh, we didn't know how to do that very well uh, because there's no practice of accountability. Some of the things actually have to be new ways, breakthroughs that need to be made. So it's not even just that the older generation has to teach us. We have to figure things out because there is no practice of accountability within movements. Even when they set up organizations and they have NGOs and whatever, they don't have a practice of accountability. It's a serious crisis. Uh, so um, then there's also the question of uh, what do we do now moving forward? And um, there's this incredible movement that some, some of you will definitely uh, be aware of in Francophone Africa who are resisting uh, the, the, the French uh, uh, military and uh, ousting them actually of countries and we know that in the vacuum the, their own militaries have stepped in and that's also an expression of the fact that we don't have enough confidence to have our own leaders build movements and organizations that are can, can have the weight to step in when there's a vacuum and this is a historical problem that we've had but in the midst of that or political opportunity and possibilities have arisen. While this is happening in West Africa, in the Horn of Africa, you have the No More movement that's also trying to like push an anti-American like uh, uh, positioning to, to ensure more space for national sovereignty. Very complicated because you also have local elites doing all kinds of things in the midst of that. But uh, so countries like Somalia, for instance, you have this upswell of like uh, people who are using social media, these very tools that we're looking at, but also on the streets protesting, uh, but coming together across the different countries. So the first time we're seeing people in a very long time from the Horn of Africa coming together, saying that we're supporting this country, we're supporting, the, you know, we are working together. It's, it's, it's a new period that we're entering. So people are responding to the shifts as they're happening there. And um, that, 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 so it, I think that in many ways, I think that we need to be able to um, build those connections because the only way you can do that is if you identify that we have a common en enemy. Once you know you have a common enemy, you understand that strengthening the struggle of this person actually deals with the same problem that I'm having. So until you begin to bridge, build those kinds of bridges. So 
I, I, I don't want to pretend that it's easy to do if, if, if in our own city right here where we are based, uh, we, we find that it's very difficult to unite and to create a space for people to come together. Uh, but I think that in many small ways and in big ways, you can begin to do that. Um, and and um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to build from that from here because it's concrete actions. It's not going to come from uh, uh, um, some other space or whatever. We have to be able to build that now. And surplus is a space like that. It's a non-sectarian space open to people to be able to come in to meet, to talk. So this is the beginning, the seeds that we can then uh, nourish. So yeah, that's enough. I just want to say uh, thanks a lot for that. That was amazing. And, and it's such a pleasure to sit with you and talk um, because um, these are appalling things to talk about but you know i think it's fun to talk with you about them so thanks a lot i really appreciate it i want to welcome all of you to come to the website of the organization that i direct which is called the tricontinental.org um every week um it comes under my name but you know people contribute to it we send out a newsletter which reaches now about a million people in about eight languages it, it's a pretty interesting thing that's happened with that newsletter um, because it, it reaches a lot of people. The last newsletter was about art and about a dossier we produced uh, on the 80th anniversary of the Mao's lectures on Yenan. And the newsletter is about the assassination of uh, Shirin Abu Akleh um, and uh, the way in which, in a sense, um, she was killed in Jenin, where the Freedom Theater, the Palestinian Freedom Theater is located where its founder had been killed about a decade plus ago. Um, and uh, Giuliano Mir Khamis had been killed about, I think, 10, 11 years ago. Uh, and so uh, then it goes into our opportunity to think about culture as a place to have conversations about society and as a place to not, you can't change the world in culture, but you can start to appreciate different possibilities in the realm of culture, which then sets you out to do other things and to try to build power. Um, culture is a great place to have a conversation about how bad our society has become. But anyway, the main point is please go and subscribe to the newsletter, tell other people about it, look at the material we produce, it's all available free. Now that comes to an interesting issue. And, and I want to end here. Talk about information war. Um, the moment our institute where Ephraim and I work and, and others work, started to get, build its own legs and started to develop, you know, people develop an interest in it. The attack started. Where do you get the money from? And it just saturated social media. I mean, I have never, I mean, I've been attacked a lot, also physically and also by the police in different places and all of that, that's fine. But this was interesting. These accounts emerge and there's like a denial of service attack against you um, on the basis of, are you a Chinese agent? And, and that's interesting. Uh, and that makes you think always. So um, I just want to say that um, who cares where the bread comes from? The main thing is we're doing the work we do. It's interesting that even that when the suspicion is sowed, when the doubt is sowed, people who take money from like George Soros are then high and mighty saying, where do you get the money from? You know, it's pretty cool for them to take the money from the Rockefeller Foundation 
Ford Foundation, George Soros, governments of the United States. Downstairs is Susan Williams' terrific book, White Malice, about how the CIA was walking around in the African continent just throwing money, dollars at artists and people and so on. So interesting that people have such an interesting attitude towards when the critique starts to get legs. So come join us, see what you think about the work we're doing, send us your own critiques, but for God's sake, let it be a serious critique. Um, and, and I would also just like you to know that we are not afraid of anything. Um, we welcome criticism. Uh, we also welcome the attacks. If they're not attacking you, and this is what I was telling them at Abaklali three days ago, the reason your comrades, our comrades are being killed is because you're building power. When you start building power, they come for you. Be prepared for that. We are ready. We are ready. I've been in this movement for over 35 years. I'm ready. I started as a student activist. I'm ready. I've been in jail. I've done my time. I'm ready. I'll go back again. We are not afraid of them. We are not afraid of them. Those people in Abakalali that you mentioned, they are not afraid. Come, we are ready for you. Come listen to our talk. Those of you who are here to inform, I hope you learn something and go back and write a report where you say, you know, I listened to them and actually they're right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>